0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. Story ideas come to me from many different directions, and this one came in the form of a book sent to me by an old friend up in Vestal, New York, outside of Binghamton. My friend Tom knows that my distant relatives hail from the area around Spencer, New York. He and his kids spent part of a day with me a few years ago, hunting down information and a few gravestones around the area known as Hagedorn Hill. He sent the book to me along with a letter that read in part, It's strange to read a book where you know most everyone in the book, as well as the locations. We know the senior investigator for the New York State Police in this story, and I went to school with the author. Public opinion had Cal Harris, a car dealer, tried and convicted before he was arrested. I admit that since Cal Harris and his wife were headed for divorce, I was one of the people who thought he was guilty. But I also know this author, and he's one of the most honest, true blue people you'll ever meet. A solid citizen. After six years as a Marine, he joined the New York State Police and worked his way up to investigator. He later left the NYSP, became a private investigator, and it was he who was hired to represent Cal Harris. I thought of you, John, because the Hagedorn name is still visible up here. And as you know, there's a Hagedorn Hill Road, which features heavily in this story. So I thought you might be interested. And that ended Tom's letter. I've got to say, this book, Reign of Injustice, is one of the most engrossing books I've ever read. It's in large part a crime story. In equally large part, it's a well-detailed, well-researched story of a huge injustice done to a man and his family. A man who was charged with the murder of his wife. It was an ongoing story that rocked upstate New York in the days and years following September 12, 2001, just after 9-11. Michelle Harris, the wife of successful car dealer Cal Harris, went missing on that day, September 12, 2001. Four years after she went missing, her husband Cal Harris was arrested and charged with murder. There was no body and no murder weapon, but he was tried and convicted. New evidence surfaced and his conviction was overturned and a new trial was granted. Once again, he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. That conviction was then overturned. He went on trial a third time, and that ended in a mistrial. By the time the fourth trial came to be, Michelle Harris had been missing nearly 15 years. The defense investigator, the author of Reign of Injustice, David M. Beers, worked on the Cal Harris case from start to finish. His story walks you through details and events of the case which have never been revealed until the book. His detailed and true story provides an inside view of the scandalous facts you won't find elsewhere, especially in the local papers, which all appear biased against Cal Harris thanks to efforts on the part of the prosecutors to withhold evidence, to ignore the facts of the case that clashed with their own theory, and provide the press with information harmful to Harris's case. As with all of our stories, you're invited to look at both sides of this story and make up your own mind. This book should be required reading for all students of justice and law. David, it's great to have you with us today.
1: Yeah, you know, thanks for having me. Uh, I've done a few of these, and uh, I'm always anxious to accept a new interview and, and, and tell the story over and over because uh, I think the word needs to get out. It was a story that needed to be told. Uh, I never dreamed I'd be a published author, but but it was this story that, that inspired me to uh, to write the book. Could you tell us a little
0: bit about yourself? Give us some of your background.
1: I graduated high school and. uh Not long after that, I I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Had a very successful career there for six years. I rose to the rank of uh, Staff Sergeant before I was honorably discharged. And then I became a sworn member of the State Police. And uh, I worked as a uniform trooper for about nine years. And then I got, uh, I was an instructor and and then I got promoted to uh, investigator and I worked in several different capacities, uh, narcotics, uh, major crimes, violent felony warrants, and then uh, probably the most recent uh, was in the uh, forensic identification unit doing crime scene crime scene work and that type of thing. So that's kind of it in a nutshell.
0: Why were you chosen to defend Harris
1: uh <laughs> I'd been working as a defense investigator in the private sector uh, after I left the state police in 94. And the Harris case happened in September, 2001. But prior to that, I had already been working, doing defense work, uh, a lot of criminal defense work for a number of different attorneys, mostly in in Broome County, New York, which is where I live. After Cal was, after this happened, Uh, Cal kind of knew he was a suspect and and they were looking at him pretty aggressively and uh, so he and his dad uh, reached out to uh, Probably the best criminal defense attorney in in Broome County whose name was Joe Colley and I had already done some work for for Joe Colley on some other cases. So as soon as he got the call he called me and that was uh, about a week after Michelle disappeared and uh, Cal's objective at that point was, uh, was kind of twofold. Uh, one to help find his wife, Michelle, and the other one was to, uh, uh, prepare a defense should he be charged.
0: Tell us a little bit about Cal Harris. What's his story? And what was his reputation? How did people, uh, receive him?
1: Uh, they either loved him or hated him. (laughs) Uh, Cal, Cal had a kind of a volatile reputation, uh, as being uh, very aggressive, very outspoken, somewhat arrogant, controlling, and he was probably all of those things at one time or another. Uh, but he's very intelligent, very organized. Uh, he ran a, 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 a new car dealership, t- two of them, as, as a matter of fact, uh, that were it's been started by his dad, and uh, he ran a tight ship and. Uh, as long as you did your job, uh, you got along with Cal real well, but he didn't like slugs. (laughs) And, uh, and if, because that would cause a clash with Cal and and things would not go well. And, and he had, he had some issues with Michelle's family. Uh, they didn't really like him. And I, I don't know what all of the reasons were, but, uh, you know, Michelle was, uh, you know, she's very pretty, very uh, head-turning, attractive woman. Um, but she grew up in a kind of a lower middle-class environment, where where Cal was kind of an upper middle-class. So when uh, when she married into the Harris family, you know, she was kind of quickly elevated into the upper middle class, and uh, so she was experiencing some of the finer things in life and was enjoying it. Uh, but I don't know how well that went over with your family. But uh, that's, that's kind of Cal's reputation in a nutshell. They're, they're, he, had a, he had a great circle of friends at the time. Uh, and, but when this happened, there were some who kind of abandoned him right away. And others supported him right away. And then there were some that were kind of on the fence.
0: What was the relationship a little deeper between Cal and Michelle? prior to her disappearance, and then what happened the day she disappeared?
1: Okay, yeah, so backing up, uh, uh, trouble had been brewing in their marriage for quite some time. I mean, they had four small children all under the age of seven uh, at the time. You know, Michelle found out that Cal was having an affair and unbeknownst to Cal, she she was too. Probably about nine months before this happened, she, Michelle filed for divorce and Cal did not take it well. Uh, In fact, there was a lot of uh, very heated arguments, which became very nasty at times, according to uh, all the witnesses that I spoke to and the police spoke to. But in the er and that was but that was in the early stages of the divorce. Uh, As things progressed, things kind of eased up a little bit when he finally accepted the fact that this was going to happen, and so did she. And and they were just going to move on with their separate lives. And uh, but they still. Resided in the same marital home, for the benefit of the children primarily. That was that was one of the few things that they didn't argue about, uh, because they both loved their kids. They, and bo- everybody I talked to, everybody the police talked to, said that you know Cal was a great father, Michelle was a terrific mother, so there was there was never any issue there. But the the conflict was between Cal and Michelle. So then we fast forward to uh, September 11th, the day of 9/11. Michelle, back in April or May of 2011, had decided to go to work. She didn't need to, but Cal had plenty of money and she had plenty of spending money. But she was telling everybody that Cal had cut her off financially, which turned out to be not true. Uh, and, and, the, and the real reason she decided to take a job was to uh, get out of the house and be away from Cal because she didn't like fighting with him. So she took a job as a waitress at a bar restaurant down in Waverly, New York, which is about a 20 minute, maybe 30 minute drive from their house. Lefties? Lefties, correct. And uh, lefties did not have a real good reputation. I mean, they had good food and everything, but they had kind of a, a shady uh, clientele that worked there and and patronized the place. Not everybody, but there was problems there. And and Cal. Cal knew that there were some shady characters there, and he didn't like the fact that she was working there, but he let her do her thing. So on September 11th, she went to work. Uh, Cal went to work that morning, uh, and then she went to work later that afternoon uh, to work like a afternoon and early evening shift at Lefty's. And she got off work at nine o'clock. She shared a drink with a coworker till about 9.15, And then she left there and and went to, she had a boyfriend at the time that she'd been in a relationship with, uh, a covert relationship with for about six months. Uh, He was from Philadelphia. And he'd actually become so smitten with Michelle that he he moved from Philly right up to New York and to be with her. Michelle helped him find a place to live. And uh, so when she left lefties that night, she went to her boyfriend's house. So she gets there probably around 9.30, 9.40 p.m., and according to him, his name was Brian, uh, she stayed there till about 11.15 or so, and then he kissed her goodnight, and he assumed she was on her way home up in Spencer. But she didn't go home. The police believe she did, and that was part of their theory. But uh, if we fast forward to the next morning, about 7 a.m., little before Cal gets up. Now, keep in mind, they'd been sleeping in separate areas. Cal was sleeping in the master bedroom. She'd been sleeping on the couch downstairs. So he gets up that morning and comes down the stairs and uh, expecting to find Michelle there, getting the kids ready for school, but she's not there. And her car's not there. Uh, So he's, he's trying to get ready for work and get the kids ready for school. So he, he needs some help. So he, uh, he called an adult babysitter who lived about four miles away and she agreed to come over. So she came over right away. But when she gets to the end of the driveway, she sees Michelle's van parked at the end of the driveway. And what uh, kind the driveway of driveway was it? It was a, uh, see Hagedorn Hill Road at the time was just a dirt road with drainage ditches on both sides. And, uh, the Harris driveway, uh, where it intersected with Hagedorn Hill Road. It was like a quarter mile long. So you couldn't see the house from the road or, or vice versa. And paved too, right? Yeah, and the driveway was paved. Yeah, it was a very nice uh, paved driveway. It, you know, And when you get down to the end of it, it, it forks to the left to go to Cal's house, and then it forks to the right to go to his father's cottage, which is also on the same lake. But anyway, so the, the babysitter sees Michelle's van there and of course, she, so she stops and gets out, and uh, she looks in there. the The keys are in the ignition, um, but Michelle's nowhere to be seen. She looks in the back, thinking that maybe she was sleeping one off, uh, but doesn't see her, and, and no sign of her. So she gets back in her car and drives into the house, and uh, walks in the garage. the The garage door was open, and uh, and she walks into the house, and she's Cal, and says. And, uh, uh, she says to Cal, you know, is is Michelle here? He said, no, that's why I called you. She she didn't come home. So she said, well, her car's out the end of the driveway. (laughs) So Cal says, well, we better go get it. You know, so, so they're kind of speculating as to what may have happened. So Cal drives her out to the end of the driveway and has her drive Michelle's man into the house. And then, uh, she stays there with the two, uh, the, the youngest child, and Cal takes the three oldest ones to school, and then he goes on to work.
0: Did he ever regret bringing the van in uh, because it was basically a crime? I mean, he didn't know it, but it could have been a crime scene, No, right?
1: no nobody, nobody was thinking anything criminal had happened at that point. Yeah. Uh, so it seemed like a logical thing to do. And, of course, him and the babysitter are going through it, uh, uh, looking for the kids' backpacks for school and that type of thing, getting them ready. And, and he, he makes the comment that the van was a mess because yeah, you know, Michelle was practically living out of it. So it really was a mess and it was overdue for service. So uh, he wanted to get it down to the dealership and, and take care of that, but he was gonna do that later. <clears throat> but for now, he, he had her drive it into the, into the house. So he goes on into work. He drops the kids off of school. He goes to work with the babysitter's there with the youngest. And then she gets a call from one of Michelle's best friends, uh, Nikki, uh, looking for Michelle. So the babysitter explains everything to her and, and of course Nikki's suspects something wrong right away because she knew that you know, Michelle was going through a divorce and she was uh, scheduled to have a, a meeting with her attorney regarding the divorce. So she, she calls the attorney, Michelle's divorce attorney, and explains it to him. So then he he uh, initiates a conference call with the state police and uh, they explain the whole situation. In less than an hour after she's reported missing, based on the information provided by Nikki and the babysitter, the state police decide to launch a, a missing person investigation right away. Uh, and <clears throat> so within an hour and change from when she's reported missing, uh, excuse me, two investigators are knocking on the door at Cal's business to interview him about Michelle being missing. So that kind of uh, sets the stage for uh, uh, how she went missing and, and when.
0: Did the, from, the, from the very top, did the, did the lead investigator or any of the NYSP investigators have a bias against um, Harris?
1: Yes, but we, we didn't know it at the time. Um mm-hmm. uh, the, the lead investigator her name was Susan Mulvey um she was the senior investigator in charge of that particular station there in Owego uh where they were stationed and uh so she was in charge of the of the investigation and uh you know Cal Cal Har- the Cal Harris name was was well known within the Owego community just because of his uh dealings with the dealership and that type of thing so he already had a a reputation if you will uh in that community so so I there's no doubt that every one of them had some information about about Cal Harris so it didn't take them long to realize that you know there's a divorce pending and and the wife is missing so you know they're they're going to be looking at Cal as a suspect um, they went we
0: to, they went to his dealership first to talk to him did what else did they do first not to get ahead of the story but I'm just wondering yeah. how, how they're acting and what they figured was important here.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, they went and talked to Cal first. And then so he explained everything I just explained to you. And, uh, and then uh, he escorted two of the investigators out to his house, uh, took him right out there. They followed him out. He drove, he drove and they followed him out there. When they got to the end of the driveway, he pointed out where her van had been found. And then he takes them on into the house. And uh, they go through the van and then they, they, uh, they decide to tow her van down to their barracks to examine it further. And then uh, he gives them a consent, uh, a written consent to search his house and his property and his vehicle and Michelle's vehicle, which was a dealership vehicle. And then he leaves. He says, I'm, I'm go, I'll be back at work. If you need anything further, let me know. So he leaves the investigators there with, with carte blanche to do whatever they need to do. Uh, so they spent the day, uh, most of the day, most of the business day, working day, uh, looking around the property and, and, and finding out whatever they could find, uh, and in No Michelle. And then later that evening, they're still working there, and the Cal calls them and finds out they're still there, so he, he picks up his kids and takes them to dinner. And then finally he, he goes home, uh, you know, seven o'clock or so, uh, with the kids and then the police are gone. But they, but they call them later and they, they had a few follow up questions in which he cooperated and, and answered, answered their questions. And Cal had a couple of friends that went with him to, uh, to help talk to the kids about their mom being missing. So that, that was that was pretty much it for that day, <laughs> but then that, the next day, uh, you know, the police are, are back. Uh, they they want to continue their their search for Michelle, and uh, and then they bring in the forensic unit. They they find a couple of specks of blood in the in the garage and in the entryway from the garage into the into the into the house from the garage. They're very tiny, very tiny. They, they missed them the first time they looked through there. I mean, that's how small they were. So they, uh, they noted that, so, so, they, so they stopped their, their search and, and applied for a search warrant, which is the right thing to do. Then once the search warrant was uh, granted, they, they went back and they, and they started looking uh, a little more aggressively. And, and they called in some experts from the Albany Crime Lab uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, enhance some of the areas where they found the blood to see if there was any evidence of cleanup or or perhaps evidence of larger quantities. Be- because the most they found was just these few specks of like sub-millimeter-sized stains. And uh, and they were dry. Uh, so there was no no way to really tell how long they'd been there. But they kind of jumped to the conclusion that there'd been some type of an assault or or crime there and so they they collected samples took a lot of photographs and uh, the field tests showed that it was human blood and then it finally went to the lab and the lab confirmed that it was it was human blood and it was Michelle's so with that you know they, they formulated this theory that she'd been killed there in the house in that entryway and then carried out into the garage and then at some point, he uh, Cal uh, disposed of her body. So that's that was their theory. They because they, they theorized that after she left her boyfriend's house, she went home, and uh, in the midnight time frame, uh, she she walks in the house, and this is their theory, and that Cal was waiting for her with some type of uh, uh, murder weapon. And when, once she entered that entryway, he uh, bludgeoned her and she went down like a ton of bricks and then uh, started bleeding. And then uh, he carries her, drags her out into the garage and then uh, puts her in a bag or what have you and then takes her out in some remote area on the property and disposes of her body. That was that was their theory.
0: OK, that's their theory. Um, yeah. It, assuming there was a sane hit in the room. What would what would he have uh, posed as being negatives to that theory? Possible reasons why that theory couldn't hold up.
1: Well, there were several actually. Um, uh, f- first of all, the the, the one thing that kind of jumped out at me was uh, you know they were saying that this was all premeditated, and uh, you know Cal's Cal's four children were all sleeping upstairs when when this happened, uh, which which that 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 didn't make a lot of sense to me. The other thing was. Uh, it was pitch dark out when when they when they claimed that this happened and uh, cal's property was which was like 250 acres plus uh, was very very remote most of which was heavily wooded so it, it just seemed unlikely that he would have been able to uh, dispose of her body you know someplace in the dark you know he had atvs there's, there's no doubt but you know driving out there in the middle of the night and, and, and finding some place that was so remote and so hidden that, that she could never be found, that, that just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And the other thing that really didn't make a lot of sense was uh, uh, the lack of blood. Uh, there was so little there. And and even though the police had used some uh, rather extensive uh, development techniques, they, they never found anything more than those sub-millimeter stains. And... Uh, you know, I've, I've worked crime scenes before, and you know, it just didn't make much sense that there there wouldn't be some evidence of, uh, of pooling or blood spatter or cast off, something, something more, and, and it just wasn't there. And, and on top of that, there was actually areas where there should have been blood, according to their theory, where there wasn't. Because between the two areas, between the garage floor and the entryway, there was like a six-foot section of of carpet on the garage floor that where the dog slept, and uh, there was no blood there. I mean, they they examined it. They sent those that rug to the lab. There was no blood uh, on the surface of that rug. So my question was, how does how does he get her from where she's profusely bleeding in this entryway out into the garage without leaving any blood in that? space in between the no man's zone there or, you know. And, uh,
0: and where was the dog at that on that night? Uh,
1: the dog, the dog was in and out. Uh,
0: he would have tracked any blood. But yeah, they,
1: assumedly yeah.
0: before he before yeah. Harris cleaned it up, that dog would have been in it and tracked it all over the
1: house. Yeah, the dog, the dog was there uh, in and out. You know, the dog slept right there on that rug next to the garage wall. I mean, in fact, you can see some of the staining on the wall because the dog had slept there every every day. And the car is
0: sitting out there at the very end of the driveway on Hagedorn Hill Road with the keys in it. Yeah. I mean, how did the husband plan that?
1: Yeah, that's just it. You know, I, uh, they, they had some pretty bizarre theories uh, <laughs> you know, that, that pointed to, to Cal, you know, but they, they really did When you when you break it down and look at it, they just didn't make a lot of sense.
0: So, so Susan Mulvey is going going with the theory. And when, oh, yeah. when did they first interview the people that uh, that Michelle was working with and her acquaintances? When did they first start uh, doing that investigation?
1: Yeah, actually, they started that quite early. Okay. Uh, they they went to lefties and they identified her coworkers. In fact, she, she had a list uh, in her belongings of all the employees' names and their phone numbers. So it was pretty easy for them to uh, reach out to these people and talk to them. And... Uh, they learned a lot of things from, from their, from the employees. Uh, you know, she talked to them about her relationship with Cal and, uh, but you know, she liked to party. That was one of the other things that, uh, that concerned me was that, uh, you know, Michelle not only went to work, uh, you know, and left Cal alone taking care of the kids at night, but when she got out of work, she'd often go out partying into the early morning hours at various, uh, watering holes down in the valley there. Uh, and she, she'd go along with some of her coworkers and they all confirmed that. And that, that Nikki I mentioned earlier was, was one of the ones that was always with her knowing, knowing that her, vo- her divorce is still pending. And, and they they just encouraged her to, to do these things, you know, and, uh, they even encouraged her to be in a relationship with her boyfriend and helped him buy a ho- or get an apartment. So they were, uh, they were not doing her any favors. And, so, and on top of that, like I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the reputation of, of lefties and its clientele uh, was not good. Uh, so Michelle was uh, placed herself in, in a very at-risk lifestyle doing that. And I'm sure she was kind of naive to that. And she probably just assumed it was all in fun. But there was a lot of uh, you know, sexual harassment going on at uh, lefties involving her, there was there was a lot of single men who came there, and you know, once they saw Michelle, you know, they wanted to uh, be assigned to her tables, you know, to, right. so she beat on them, and and they they tell sexually related jokes, and she would take it all in fun, and 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 respond accordingly, but uh, unbeknownst to her, I think that was you know putting her in jeopardy.
0: What was Cal Drazen's, um Job there. What was his involvement in this?
1: I mean, Stan Drazen?
0: Stan Drazen, yeah.
1: Is yeah, that- he Dan was was Cal's uh, business attorney. So so he was familiar with uh, with the divorce uh, issue. So so Cal had been in regular contact with him while the divorce was pending, and and you know, one of the one of the things that the the police had tried to argue was that uh, one of them motives here was because Cal was uh, at risk of losing a lot of money. But in reality, uh, you know, Cal had learned from his attorney, Mr. Drazen, that uh, that wasn't that wasn't the case, because he owned he owned the dealership before they got married. So so the dealership wasn't uh, something that he was in uh, likely to lose as a result of the divorce. And uh, they, they'd already been discussing uh, a settlement agreement, and it was Cal's understanding and Mr. Drazen's understanding that uh, they would accept that agreement. But the police continued to argue that uh, that was uh, part, part of his motive.
0: What was Stan's opinion on Harris? Did he think Harris was guilty?
1: No, absolutely not. In fact, there was there was a there was a moment early on, actually, actually before before. Uh, uh, ju- our uh, attorney Colley got involved where Susan Mulvey came came right up to Drazen's office uh, within, a, within, within two days and she, she looks him right in the eye and says you know I know Cal did this and I'm going to prove it you know, so she was, she was hell bent on believing that Cal had done this and, and nothing was going to get in her way How
0: long was it, how long a period was it from the time you took the case until the time that they charged him four years. So you had no, no access to discovery during those four years. All, yeah, the, that's, all the interviews they did, all the investigations they did, you couldn't get a hold of notes, videotapes, anything.
1: No, we, we had to rely pretty much on what Cal could provide. You know, he was able to provide phone records from the business and the home and financial records, that type of thing. But no, we were not privy to any discovery because he hadn't been charged. So, so you I was so that
0: in, in one way it gave you you know the, in one way it gave you the willpower to go places where they didn't, and you weren't just following up on stuff that they did. But on the other hand, you could have absolutely used a lot of that.
1: Yeah, you know, because I because I, I ran into a roadblock with uh, when I tried to interview mm-hmm. uh, some of Michelle's coworkers at Lefties. They'd been told not to talk to me, you know, and so. Uh, but when I went and talked to uh, the CALS co-workers, you know, they, they kind of welcomed me with open arms and, and answered all my questions. And uh, so I found that to be pretty helpful. But but yeah, you're right. Uh, without the discovery, you're, you're kind of working blind with a lot of things. Now,
0: they found blood on day two. Why did it take four years to charge him? Obviously, they didn't have uh, You're going to tell me they didn't have enough, and I understand that. But it, it turns out that that's all they did have.
1: That's all they had, because you know, because when they when they finally did uh, indict him, uh, you know, our first question was, you know, what what more have they found, you know, what what what, what something new did they find, and as it turns out, there was nothing more. Uh, so, what what prompted them to arrest him when they did is, uh, I, I think, as I wrote in the book, because because one of the one of the lead investigators there, not, not, not Mulvey, but his, her supervisor, uh, uh, Mark Lester was his name. Uh, he made the comment at one point that, you know, there came a point in time where we, we needed to either win, lose or draw, we we're gonna go forward with this. And that's what they did. Uh, so, but, you know, on, on that same issue with the four years, Cal, so Cal was indicted four years after this happened and it was a result of that indictment that uh, that led him to have a discussion with me because he knew I had worked for the state police and he knew that uh, I knew some of the investigators working his case, but he was particularly interested in, in Sue Mulvey and what I could tell him about her. And that's when we learned of the conflict.
0: And what was the conflict?
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I, I had no clue about this, and, and neither did he, but once we started sharing information, it all came out. As it turned out, uh, I was explaining to him that, that Sue Mulvey had come on the job, had come on the state police about a year after I did. But her, her maiden name uh, was Andrews, and, and her father used to be the sheriff of Broome County. <laughs> and Cal <Kel> went ballistic. <laughs> I mean, I could still see the, the red in his eyes when I told him that. He's, you know, he, I can't remember his exact words. I, I, I put it in the book. Said, you mean you mean uh, Sue Andrews is, is John Andrews's daughter? I said, yeah, why? He says, because that, that son of a bitch worked for me and I had to fire him. So that was kind of an eye-opener for, for both of us.
0: Uh, Within the law, didn't she have to um, make that known?
1: Before she accepted this investigation or not? Well, she should have, but I don't. I don't think e- e- even her own colleagues knew that. They they knew that her dad used to be the sheriff, but they didn't know that he'd worked for Cal, and and left under very bad terms, very bad terms. Um,
0: so she and, just kept that under her hat.
1: Yeah, she just kept it under her hat. But unfortunately, you know, you know, of course, Cal was really upset. He called. Joe Colley right away and said, "You know, what are we going to do about this?" But you know, the damage had been done. Uh, he he'd already been indicted, and uh, so trying to make an issue about the conflict at that point was kind of a a moot point. Uh, so, the, you know, like I said, the damage was done. So we just had to move on. But we started to to scrutinize her work a little more thoroughly after that.
0: We'll return with author David M. Beers and Reign of Injustice right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now back to the Cal Harris story, Reign of Injustice. And I'd like to get to that question in just a little while about, uh, about her work and about um, what was suppressed and what wasn't. So put that, keep that as a note for a minute. I wanted to yeah. ask you, as the seams to their theory started to come unwound, how important was the testimony of housekeeper Thayer?
1: Oh, well, it, it was very important, uh, even though she lied. Y- yeah, I mean, the, 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 they were using her. Barb Thayer continued to work for Cal for about another year after this happened as, as their babysitter. But, but unbeknownst to Cal, you know, the, the, the police continued to work with her, and, and she was keeping a daily log of, her, uh, of things that were happening with Cal, and she'd report back to the police. So we, we didn't know any of this until we started to get our discovery material, you know, four years later. Uh, and, and in that same material, we learned that uh, she was telling people things that weren't true. Like, for example, uh, in the morning Michelle was reported missing, uh, she claimed to have called Michelle's cell phone that morning uh, you know, to see where she was. But as it turned out, it wasn't her that made that call. It was Cal. Cal was the one who tried to call her. But they, they tried to make a big argument of that. But, but the timing the timing of the call actually proved that it was Cal who made the call and, and there, there's no way she could have done it at the time that she claimed it happened. And, and so that was one issue, a major issue. And the other one was, uh, she was also telling people that after September 12th, it was like Michelle never existed. She was claiming that Cal was getting rid of anything and everything pertaining to Michelle, pictures and clothing and, and everything. And and, and, and as if she was, she never existed. You know, and, and when we found that out, you know, Cal says, ah, that's ridiculous. He says, I'll take you right out there. He says, I'll show you. And, 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 and so I did. I went out there with him and he showed me uh, all of the things that were still there. Uh, Michelle's designer clothes still hanging in the master bedroom closet, uh, photo albums and uh, film, uh, all of which still contain Michelle's pictures and the, their wedding album. So, so she was lying to people by, by saying that. And, uh, and, and I understand why she did it. She was very close to Michelle. Michelle confided in her, and she felt very strongly that Cal had done this, but you know, that didn't give her permission to lie about things. But she wanted to help the cause, and that's what she did.
0: What were the biggest reveals for you before the first trial, where you really felt like the investigation was being mishandled by the state police, that you weren't getting all the information that you should be getting, that actually some of it was being purposely hidden from you, and maybe some mistakes in the investigation. What were those big pieces that started to come together for you?
1: Well, there were so many different things. Uh, but, you know, one of them was, uh, uh, they, they kind of shied away from Michelle's boyfriend
0: the the last person she, that who saw her alive
1: yeah because he he was the last person to see her alive and it was only his word that that she left when he said she did and so he really didn't have an alibi
0: yeah he uh, was a he was a big suspect in your mind right
1: yeah yeah absolutely because because here's the thing um, that and initially and this was before the first trial we, we were seriously looking at this Brian early was his name as a real potential suspect because of that and and what really prompted it, uh, from a defense perspective, was that uh, a lot of Michelle's jewelry was missing. She wore a lot of jewelry, and at the time, she she was in possession of a lot of her uh, extra jewelry that she was carrying around in a jeweler's bag, trying to sell it hmm. to raise money for a down payment on a house. And uh, of course, the boyfriend knew that, and so did co-workers at Lefties.
0: Her boyfriend loaned her five thousand dollars, right?
1: And he loaned her $5,000. So our, our theory was, and because we had learned from uh, another source that uh, Michelle had told one of her friends, uh, a, a, a woman she confided in like a mother on a regular basis, had told her that her relationship with Brian had run its course. So our, our theory was initially that uh, she went to his house that night to call an end to it and he didn't take it well. Now now he's out $5,000, and he knows she doesn't have the money, so he wants the jewelry in exchange. So that, that was kind of our, our position there. And, and, that, and that, that was never addressed by the, by the police at all. You know, they they, limit, they kind of crawled into bed with this guy. Oh, and the, the other thing there that really bothered me about that was uh, here he here got the last guy to see her alive. It wasn't Cal, it was Brian. And they don't search his house. Yeah. They don't search his car. They don't search him. And then on top of that, him and his family have hunting property just over the Pennsylvania border that he that he admitted having taken her there. And they don't even search that. Mm. They they just go there and, 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 you know, do one of these, you know, and, and no pictures, uh, nothing. No scuba divers in the pond, nothing. How can you not do that? I mean... Uh, so, so you know you know where their focus was and, and and they weren't gonna let anything get in their way.
0: Cal had uh, a lot of detractors in this. His own brother and sister-in-law, oh were, yeah, weren't speaking well of him. When they were interviewed, what did they say?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, Cal had a, a kind of a strange relationship with his with his family, except his his dad. He had a good relationship with his dad. But his brothers, you know, they'd had fallings out over business dealings. And so they didn't have much good to say about Cal. Uh, they, they'd gotten in f- physical fights at times, uh, had each other arrested, uh, things like that. So, so yeah, I, I did talk to uh, Cal's brother, Kevin, and his wife, and, uh, and then another uh, sister. And, and none of them had much good to say about him, other than Cal was a good dad. They, they really didn't dispute that at all. And, and I think they were convinced that Cal did this. And, uh, you know, like Kevin, for example, said, you know, follow the money and, and you'll know it's him. You know, but, you know, as it turned out, that there was nothing to that.
0: At what point did you run into the witness that gave you the information about the stalker, about the vehicle that had been um, following Michelle for the last couple of weeks before she disappeared? It was a dark vehicle. Was it dark green?
1: Yeah. No. No. Nobody. Nobody ever said it was green. Um, that's what the police wanted it to believe. Okay. Yeah. There was uh, <clears throat> actually, it was uh, uh the boyfriend's landlord, uh, who, who lived in the apartment above him, uh, the Millers. They owned the building and they 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 lived in the apartment above Brian Early, so they were interviewed. And and uh. Mrs. Miller describes having seen a dark pickup truck circling around the uh, apartment complex. I mean, this is a small complex, it's, it's, it's off the main road. There, there, nobody drives there except local traffic. But she sees this strange pickup she'd never seen before, late at night, uh, just kind of lurking around. And uh, so that kind of jumped out at me and, and I became very suspicious of that. And, and it became even, even more significant later on when, when we developed new evidence after the first trial with, with, uh, with a couple new witnesses. And, and uh, that, that same truck issue started making me believe that uh, uh, it was someone other than Cal that was uh, keeping an eye on, uh, on Michelle there's just so many different issues in this case. I probably should back up a little bit uh, and, and, and address the, uh, the concerns and, and the controversy that we had regarding the blood. Like I've already mentioned, the size of the blood was very, very minimal. It was spread out in, a, in an area where there was uh, 10 or 11 separate little areas, but they're all very, very tiny, both in the garage and in the uh, entryway. And, and the police had uh, done an extensive job trying to develop it further and, and never found anything further with their, with their variable light sources and their uh, uh, blood reagents that they use. Uh, they never found anything. So, th- so the controversy was kind of two part. Uh, the one was the, uh, the, the volume of blood. Even even uh, the experts from both sides agreed that it was no more than 10 drops, which is pretty small, which, which obviously uh, would suggest that, you know, nobody would have died from uh, uh, an injury that only resulted in 10 drops of blood. Some of the early samples they took, they didn't bother to photograph before they took their samples and, and, and in so doing, they, they consumed the sample. You know, that's, that's not good. Uh, and and they, they had a real problem with their photographs. You know, ordinarily, you try to secure evidence uh, as is, uh, the best you can. But here, you know, you've got a concrete floor, so that, that's pretty difficult to do. So your, your only method, really, is, uh, is to photograph it. But they had all kinds of problems with their photos. Uh, uh, contrast, uh, flash problems, either too bright or not enough. Uh, exposure issues, uh, so it was very difficult to determine the actual color uh, of the floor and, and of course the blood. So when they when they were consulting with their expert, all he had to work with, with it was these these photographs, and the, and they were like I said they're they're all you know they they, they varied so extreme uh, that it was difficult to uh, offer an opinion. Uh, without knowing what the true color was. They didn't use a color balance card. They should have had an expert take the photos, but they didn't. And and they were really, really pretty lousy, considering that that's your only source of, 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 of revealing the evidence. Did all the drops they found match her, or just one of them, or some of them? The ones they tested uh, were hers, yeah.
0: And it could have been anything, from a bloody nose to, you yeah, know.
1: I mean. The the possibilities cut are, the kitchen uh, cut. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, Michelle, uh, there, there, and there was Michelle uh, worked on these craft things, so she used to use these exacto knives, you know, and yeah. uh, and the other thing uh, that which is really interesting that they kind of steered away from was that in Michelle's divorce affidavit, she claimed that she'd been in an argument with Cal out in the driveway, and, and uh, during that argument, he pushed her. She said. And she fell down and she cut her hand. hmm Yeah. But when they're and and the interesting about that is when they're when the police are consulting with their blood expert, Dr. Lee, they don't tell him that. Hmm. But he tell, but he tells them, uh, and, and we've got it all on videotape. They videotaped their their meeting with Dr. Lee and because 48 hours was interested, so they came and filmed it. And this is this is before the first trial, even. And Dr. Lee says to them that you know that the, the the blood specks they're looking at could have been from a hand you know somebody just shaking their hand yeah but 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 they never tell him that <laughs> that Michelle had, had cut her hand
0: so he had to tell them
1: <laughs> so and the other the other controversy regarding the blood uh, a huge controversy was the age of the blood now they found they found this this is bizarre too uh, john they found the first blood specks on september 14th okay two days into it they didn't take the first photographs until the 16th mm. so now, now four days have already gone by Yep. but now now they want their expert to say that it's fresh it, it, it's within within a couple of days and he, and he pretty much gives it to him and, and he was later kind of admonished for doing that because there was no scientific basis for that right so <laughs> The age of the bloods became a huge controversy uh, because there's really no way of aging blood once it's dried in a protected environment. Uh, I, I did experience experiments when I was in the blood stain school where uh, we took samples of blood, let them dry, and, and took photographs on subsequent days for about two weeks. And, and if you look at day two versus day 14 you can't tell the difference visually and 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 on top of that in this case they had the the bad photographs so and and the 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 big issue with the photographs with, with the, were the ones that had too much flash because the gray floor the gray painted concrete floor was kind of washed out almost white but that same flash what it did to the blood was actually brightened it and and made it look much redder than it really was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, so it's very 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 misleading, and that that was our biggest concern. Uh, if that photo was shown to a jury, that it would be misleading, misrepresentative of what of what it really was. Uh, but but that's what they did.
0: But it did look like there was some kind of solvent used on the garage floor. No. It did not. Okay. No. Because you said it was kind of washed out. That was, the what looked washed out was what they put down to determine where the blood was, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. well, th- there was a couple of things about the, they, they were trying to claim that there was evidence of cleanup. Yeah. It, it, that really, it really, it really didn't matter whether there was cleanup or not, because even if there was a, uh, if there was an innocent explanation for the blood, let's say Michelle cut herself and, and, uh, stopped the bleeding and then went and cleaned it up. So there, there could be evidence of cleanup, but there, from what we could tell and what our experts could tell, there, there really was no evidence of cleanup because uh, in, in some of the areas that you look at, it looks as if uh, the blood had been slightly diluted, but then in the one right next to it, it didn't look diluted. Yeah. So it, it really didn't make much sense that, uh, that, that there'd been any type of formal cleanup. But, but more likely, maybe some water dripped on it over time uh, from you know, water on the tires of the car or something. Who knows? But that became a real sticking point in the trial. Uh, it was the argument over the dilution of the blood.
0: You were there for that first trial. I'm trying yeah. to imagine what it was like when the prosecutor was making his final argument to the jury. It was I assume it was a jury trial. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's trying to explain... How she parked her car at the very end of the driveway, left the keys in it, and
1: he's—that's no, no, that's not quite right. Uh, their theory was that uh, she, when she got home that night, she drove her car all the way into the garage, and and then parked it and went in and got beat up.
0: Okay, and,
1: and after Cal disposed of her body, he drove her car back out and parked it at the end of the driveway. That was their theory.
0: And why did he do that?
1: To try to distance himself from uh committing
0: the crime so making it look like the crime happened out on the road
1: yeah or 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 he puts her car out there pretending not to know how it got there or when
0: okay, so she okay. drove the car into the into the garage is is what yeah. they're they're trying to tell the jury, yeah, and that he uh, somewhere between the car and the door attached to the kitchen he he jumped her and yeah. and 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 uh bludgeoned her. To death. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: All in just a few seconds and practically, yeah. practically bloodless. The dog didn't bark. Nobody in the house woke up. She didn't scream. Just this all just went down. And then he was able to somehow dispose of the body. We have, we have to assume a, 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 he knew where to take it, although they, have, they searched every square inch of that property and all the lakes attached. Yeah, and that, they, and that nobody in the family saw him. He didn't wake anybody up, and he went to work the next day just as normal as 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 could be. Yeah, yeah. And the and yeah. the jury was supposed to swallow all that.
1: And, yeah, yeah, and they did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their theory was that he had this. Uh, he he found this place earlier, and that was part of his plan as a place to hide the body. Uh, but like you said, you know the they searched that place like, you know, they left no stone unturned. And uh, in fact the uh, the forest rangers who coordinated those ground searches were convinced that uh, there was a 95% chance she wasn't on that property anywhere, uh, and she wasn't. So yeah, that that was that was their theory. And the, and the other thing he said in his closing uh, was that you know she'd been uh, hit twice, you know, by some object, you know, and they, but there was no evidence of that at all because if if you hit somebody a second time there's going to be some cast off yeah. or, or back spatter, they call it. Uh, and there was nothing like that, nothing like that. And the other thing in that little entryway, which was less than like four feet square, it's pretty small. That's where they, that's, that was the, the kill zone. They, you know, uh, their ground zero. That's where they said the assault took place. And on the, on the floor was the uh, it was ceramic tile. And there was this little throw rug that just laid there, uh, that that took up most of the space. There was no blood on the tile around it, no blood underneath it. But for whatever reason, they decided to take that rug into evidence. Uh, We don't know why, initially. But later, when they're consulting with their expert, they find these tiny specks of blood on the rug. And And the expert says to them, do you know which side of the rug it was found on? And they said no, <laughs> but fortunately they they taken pictures before they removed the rug, and when you compare the pictures to the rug, it was it was pretty obvious, and they later admitted that the specks of blood were on the bottom of the rug. So, and 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 like I said, it was just little specks that nothing. No pooling, no soaking in, nothing like that. And, you know, if you if you bludgeon someone and they start bleeding like that, uh, it's not gonna be just a few specks, okay? And and the other bizarre thing was that, you know, they, they, so they wanted you to believe that, yeah, Cal did all this meticulous cleanup in the garage and hiding of the body, but when it came to the rug, he just flipped it over. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that just that didn't make any sense whatsoever, none whatsoever.
0: During the whole course of this investigation, what did Susan Mulvey do to slow down your investigation or to conceal evidence or to use illegal tactics in order to kind of bring him out?
1: <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, she was always, always kind of trying to harass him any way she could. She, she called Child Protective Service on him, for one thing. With with no with no uh, foundation for it whatsoever, uh, trying to get CPS to maybe take his kids away, that didn't work. And then uh, the other thing she would do, she'd call the helicopter to come down. I mean, we're talking sometimes months later, and yeah, claiming that it, that they were going to search for Michelle. But all they did, they wanted to fly over Cal's house and let him know they were there, see him, you know, waving his fist at him, you know, which he did. And then uh, they did that a couple of different times. <laughs> and another time, this, this was kind of bizarre, uh, but I did write about it in the book. When all this was happening, one of the things Cal was really trying very hard to do was kind of shield his kids from what was happening. So at one point, after this had been going on for how, how long it was, it wasn't too long, he decided to get his kids away from everything and he, he took them down to Disney World. He, uh, he had another adult couple go with him to help with the kids, and he flew down there with his kids to Disney World, and he was down there for a few days and then came back. And when he gets back to the airport in Syracuse, guess who's waiting for him? Standing right there in plain sight. You know, they're not, they're not trying to surveil him. They, they want him to see them. Mulvey and, and another investigator standing there. For, and and for, for what purpose? Uh, to see who he's gonna contact, <laughs> it just that you know, that was that was nothing but you know muscle flexing in, in my opinion
0: yeah, didn't they pull an unauthorized search on him one time to see how he would react
1: yeah they uh they they put together uh they got a court order to put a gps unit on his truck and also and and they 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 got these teams of uh tactical teams to, to watch his place and, and to, and to, and to see where he goes. So they, they, they created this, uh, they call his attorney, call Mr. Drazen and that's say, uh, you know, we're, 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 getting another search warrant for Cal's house. You don't, you don't do that. You don't give advanced notice of a search warrant, but, but, but they, they wanted him to know they were coming Yeah. to, to see what his reaction would be. And, uh, <laughs> and it and, and didn't amount to anything. He, you, know, he, uh, you know, they followed him around. Uh, you know, they tracked his GPS uh, positions, and then they turned out to be nothing at all. Um, but that didn't stop him from from checking out every place he stopped. You know, he went to Chuck E. Cheese with his kids, and uh, uh, he, he went down by the lake to go uh, jet skiing and that type of thing. And, uh, no, he, he never did anything that, that was helpful to the cause.
0: Stay tuned for part two and the exciting conclusion of Reign of Injustice next Sunday night at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Just ahead, four trials. A last-minute witness shows up who places a man in a pickup truck talking angrily to Michelle Harris at the end of her driveway in the early morning hours of September 11th, this being the last man to see her alive. And still the state police are sticking to their story that Cal is the murderer while the real suspects are piling up. Four trials to come and a a three-and-a-half-year prison sentence waiting for Cal Harris.